0: Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change
1: people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 5:12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord.
0: Uh, Well, as we've already said, welcome to Redeemer. For those of you in the room and for those of you joining online, we're honored and excited that you are here. Uh, If you are here in the room, then you got to follow the yellow brick road. Uh, We are a portable church, which means we meet in a school, and sometimes that school has a large play where they put on the Wizard of Oz. And when I found out about that early this week, with all of my might, I tried to think of a good creative uh, sermon that we could use to overlap with that, and I came up with nothing, so turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to talk instead about Jesus, and we have been walking through the book of Romans for a few months now, and the Old Testament is, is filled with what uh, the Bible calls types uh, or, or individuals that are foreshadowing of someone that was greater, that was going to come, uh, that they're shadows, they're types of really Jesus, of Christ, and um, you find out that Jesus would become the true and the better version of those types from the Old Testament, So we've already talked a little bit about Abraham and that he was uh, called by God to leave his country in a very known and comfortable place and to go begin a nation for God. And you find out later on that Jesus is actually the true and the better Abram, that Abraham was a type of Jesus and Jesus would leave his very comfortable home in heaven and he would invade humanity as one of us to really create a people of God, that Jesus is the true and he's the better Adam. And Moses, Moses was a type in the Old Testament. He was a real man, but he was a foreshadowing of someone that was going to come. Uh, Moses grew up, and his people were inside of slavery in Egypt, and Moses, so to speak, had a foot in both worlds, um, that he was Jewish, but he also had a place in in Pharaoh's household, and he would eventually grow up with a foot in both worlds to lead God's people out of slavery, and then he delivered the commands to them. He walked up Mount Sinai got the Ten Commandments from God and delivered those to the people. And while that plays an important part in in biblical and human history, he was a type, and Jesus is the true and the better Moses. That what he did... For, for, for Christians, was more powerful than even what Moses did for the Israelites. Jesus had a foot in both worlds. He was both fully God and fully man. He would lead us to freedom from slavery, not slavery from uh, Egypt, but he would lead a charge of freedom for Christians to be free from Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave. And he would be the prophet to end all prophets. Moses spoke for God and delivered the commandments, but Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the prophet that all of the other prophets have been looking forward to. He's the the true and the better Moses. There's an Old Testament priest named Melchizedek who was a priest who would take the needs of the people before God. And you find out that Jesus is, in fact, the true and the better Melchizedek, that he is the priest that will stand forever as a priest forever between God's people and God, delivering once for all his own body as a slain lamb of God in our place for our sins, and he intercedes for believers forever on behalf of us to God. He is a a true and a better Melchizedek and uh, even David. David would have been a hero in the Old Testament. He grew up, and you know the story that he uh, was uh, uh, the the runt of the litter, so to speak. He was the smallest of the boys, and there was a giant that was threatening their people, and David slew Goliath, and then David would go on to become the most prominent king in Israel. And while David was a, a good man and a man after God's own heart, he was a type or a foreshadowing of someone much greater that was going to come. And so Jesus is the true and the better David that he, he, he slew a Goliath that was bigger than the Philistine that David slew. He slew Satan, sin and death himself, and he would become not just the king of Israel, but the king over all of the cosmos, where we are told that one day Jesus will be uh, seen by all as the rightful king of kings and the Lord of lords who sits on a throne over all of the cosmos. The Old Testament is full of types that are foreshadowing, all pushing our attention and our hope towards Jesus and today in Romans chapter 5 we're going to see that Adam was even a type of Christ Um, that when God created Adam and put him in a garden there were some things that he did and decisions he made that brought consequences that you and I have felt all of our lives and probably have even felt the results of those this morning in some way. And then Jesus has come and Jesus is the true and the better Adam. Adam had a moment in the Garden of Eden where he was challenged by God, tempted by Satan and he failed the test with massive consequences for us that were negative. And then Jesus comes and Jesus has a moment in his garden, in the garden of Gethsemane with the same test, the same temptations, the same trials, yet he succeeded and he triumphed. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter five, verses 12 through 21. I hope you have a Bible because we've got some uh, technical problems with the screen here this morning. But uh, praise God that the word of God is not bound to technology. So we're gonna march forward. And if you have a Bible, go to uh, Romans five twelve, and we're gonna begin there. Uh, it's really going to start with, uh, basically, the place that all the epidemiologists were in just about a year ago, uh, when COVID hit the nation and hit the world, um, the three big questions that epidemiologists were asking uh, when they were presented with COVID nineteen was where did it start, how does it spread, and what is the cure? That's what everybody was frantically trying to figure out: where did it start, how does it spread. And what is the cure? And I will push that into this text because that's the answer that Paul is trying to, uh, to, to tease out for us. That humanity has been infected with something called sin and death. And so he asks the question, where did it start? How is it spread? And what is the cure? If you're in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, let me hear from you and say, ready. This is what God's word says, talking about the first Adam that failed his test in the garden. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world, this was the ground zero for the epidemic, uh, the pandemic of sin, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death has spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come." Let's unpack a few things, and really I wanted to give you a story because I know many of you are brand new to the Bible, but if you open up the first few pages of your Bible in Genesis, you find the story of Adam, that God created Adam, He put him in a garden to have a relationship with him, to work and to keep the garden, to have meaningful work, to have meaningful relationship with his wife Eve, and He gave some commands, and uh, there were a lot of commands and things that they were to enjoy. Uh, Really, the whole garden and all of the the experiences and and the plants and the animals were for their enjoyment but God said there is one tree that I don't want you to touch there was one thing that was off limits and uh, if you are like me and you are given nine things not to do nine things that are you have free reign to do and one thing that you're not supposed to do where does your attention naturally go towards that one thing not to do if you tell your children you can have whatever you want just don't eat this what are they going to eat that, whatever that is. And that's the nature that Adam had. And when he was presented with the, the the opportunity to relate perfectly with God, to obey him, to trust him, he was really put at a fork in the road. And then Satan would be, show up as the great deceiver and would deceive Adam in the garden and uh, basically try to tempt him to disobey God. He said, you don't need to trust God, you don't need to trust God's promises. Uh, God is actually trying to keep you from becoming like him. That was the temptation that you have heard in your ears. Uh, I know just as well as I have. Uh, there's a, when when Satan tempts, he tempts us to disbelieve God's promises, to think those promises are not for our good. And so Satan whispers into Adam's ear and he says, "If you just eat of that tree, you're going you don't have to worship God, you don't have to submit to him." You don't have to obey him. You can become like him. And that was the test for Adam in the garden, and he failed. He failed, and then he immediately started blaming. Uh, when God shows up with the repercussions and the, uh, the, the punishment of his sin, he decides to blame God, and he decides to blame his wife. He says, well, you gave me this woman, and uh, she tempted me, and I was, I was innocent, but uh, God, you had some problems, and, and Eve had some problems, and so he, uh, he failed to enjoy God as he should. He did not submit to God's rightful rule and reign. He gave in to Satan's temptations and chose to believe this lie. He refused to obey and worship God and rather tried to obey and worship himself and set himself up as God. And basically in this moment, he, 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 he had this cosmic treason moment. And I think oftentimes when you, when you start talking about Adam and sin and the effects of sin, some people think that what he did was he just kind of messed up a little bit. It's like the speed limit was 65 and he went 66. And it just seems like a, a drastic consequence for such a small thing. But that's not what was taking place at all. That before Adam was put a fork in the road with two choices, to worship and obey God or to worship and obey himself. And he chose this route. And so this was an act of cosmic treason against his creator and his God, that that's what happened in the garden. Adam sinned, and the consequence, we find out, is death. That's what God promised him. He says, don't disobey, don't eat of this tree, because in the day that you do it, you will surely die. And so the moment he did that, a few things flooded into the human race. Uh, Physical death, We're told that there was no physical death before this moment, that now things die, that things begin to deteriorate, and all of us are headed towards death one day physically. Uh, Spiritual death entered the world that the relationship between people And God that was designed to be one of of enjoyment and flourishing was severed that we have in fact rebelled and a spiritual death came that has set us apart from God uh, spiritually dead towards God and then this what it just told us in Romans chapter 5 is that the sin nature not only came into the world but then Adam began to pass it down to all of his descendants if you think about your DNA, and if there's something that happens with your DNA that you pass on uh, that's hereditary, this is like spiritual DNA. Uh, the spiritual DNA of Adam uh, was corrupted by sin, and so when he had kids, he had little sinners. Uh, Because he passed that spiritual DNA on. And when those kids got together, they had more kids. They had little sinners, and they had little sinners all the way up until we were born. And we were born with a sin nature corrupted by the seed that Adam has. And we've passed it on. And if you have had children, you know this. What did you have? You had small sinners. Just like you, just like your parents, just like your grandparents. This is what Adam is saying, as God says, that Adam chose to sin, and with that came the consequences of physical death, spiritual death, and that has been passed on to all of us. There's something interesting in verse 13 that he says. That he says that even before Moses shows up with the law and the commandments, um, that uh, in certain ways that the sin was not counted because there was no written law. But he says that there, death still reigned. Um, there was still consequences for sin. If you rewind a few weeks to Romans chapter 2, We found out that God has displayed his character through laws and those laws through two different ways. One through an external law that's a written down code of things to do and not to do beginning with the Ten Commandments. Uh, And then the second one is that God has implanted his character through laws internally on human beings through our conscience. That we have been given a conscience by God that is uh, strangely unanimous across the globe. Um, across the globe that a human being that has never read the Bible, has never experienced or understood the external law of God, knows in their heart that it is wrong to murder, that it is wrong to steal, that it is wrong to cheat. When you have a guilty conscience, that's God speaking internally to you that we are violating the commands and the character of God. So in, in a sense, he's saying the, their their sin was not counted against them because there was no written law, but they were still sinners because they were violating their conscience, and thus death reigned, he says, from Adam to Moses. So humanity is just infected to the deepest parts by sin, and it has wreaked havoc on all of us. And I would dare to guess that each one of us, if I were to ask, what's the most horrible thing in your life right now or in your past, it would be something to do with the effects of sin, the effects of death, and what that has brought into your life. That is our greatest enemy, and that's what we have inherited through Adam. And he says something that if you're, if you're like me, and you're a Westerner, and you're a Texan, how many Texans in the room? We love our individual freedom, amen? Amen. Don't tread on our freedom. Like, we love to do what we want to do. We don't like people telling us what to do. Uh, We will set up our own country and we will exit. it, right? Uh, We're going to exit and set up our own nation. So there's there's a piece of that as Americans and especially Texans and especially West Texans that we love the individualism. We don't like being uh, bunched in with a, a group. And that's what just happened. It just said that because Adam sinned, we all sinned. And so Westerners really hate that idea, but this idea in, in theological terms, it's something called federal headship. And so in most places around the world, um, the idea that we really shrug off and hate that we can be guilty because of somebody else's actions, that why do we have to put up with the consequences that Adam sinned? We didn't sin. I think I would have done really well, right, in the garden, presented with those options. I'm sure, you know, given my track record, I would have been just fantastic and, and, and responded more like Jesus than Adam. Um, but in most places in the world, um, there's an understanding of this federal headship. Uh, in, in U.S. terms, it's somewhat like a representative government, um, that we send representatives and they make decisions and uh, like it or not, good or bad, they speak for us. And so in a culture, like most places in the world, where they're very tribe-oriented, very family-oriented, very um, clan-oriented, it's natural that one person is given this federal headship and this ability to present themselves on behalf of the masses. And Romans 5 is saying that Adam didn't just sin for himself, that he represented the human race. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And I think one of the reasons, honestly, that we uh, are frustrated with this idea is that we really do, maybe we'd think that we would have done better, um, but I would just present to you the case of your past and my past and, and think if we were given the same options as Adam, I don't think we would have done any better. And, and, and I'll mention this because I think this is important. If, if we're too individualistic to accept that we are guilty in association with Adam, We are going to be too individualistic to think that we can be innocent in relation to Jesus. Because both of them follow the same linear progression of federal headship. And if we struggle with understanding that we're guilty because when Adam sinned, all of us sinned, we're going to struggle with the idea that we need to be saved through Jesus and his actions, and so we're going to work as hard as we can to try to uh, save ourselves. And so it's a very biblical thing, but it's also an unbelievable thing that we get to be saved not through our own works, but through our federal head of Jesus who represents us before the throne of God with his sacrifice. So that's the situation that we're at. That's that's the situation of how Adam do. Adam did not do really well with his opportunity in the garden. So verse 15, uh, he turns his attention to Jesus. So if, if, if this problem of sin and death came into the world through Adam and it spread just through having kids that are sinners, then what's the remedy? What's the answer? Verse 15 says this, but... The free gift is not like the trespass. And he's going to start contrasting the second Adam, Jesus, as the true and the better Adam with the first Adam. But the free gift, he says, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. And if you have a physical Bible with a pen or the ability to highlight, I think that's an unbelievably important phrase for you to highlight. If, because, if "...who receive the abundance. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, and encircle life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as trespasses led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Talking about the ten commands and then the additional commands beyond that, they came into the world so that we would truly know how how short we have fallen from God's standards. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are so many things going on here, but what Paul is is trying to explain to us is that Jesus is the true and the better Adam. And if you fast forward to Jesus' moment, not just his life, but especially the moment when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, the night he was uh, betrayed and the night that he would eventually lay his life down for us, uh, he faced a very similar temptation to what Adam faced. All throughout life, and even in the first uh, days of jesus 's ministry, when he goes into the wilderness for forty days, he is tempted by Satan, and you see that satan 's temptations towards him were very similar to what the serpent tempted Adam with, uh, setting himself up as God, uh, refusing to obey God, refusing to worship God, and yet in the midst of that temptation, Jesus stood the test and jesus didn 't ignore and discount God's word. He actually quoted God's word when Satan tempts him. He responds every time with quoting quotes from the Bible. So Jesus trusted God's word. He fully obeyed God's word. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded, that he he passed his test in the garden, and then he would lay his life down as a true hero. Selfless act of courage, unbelievable act of honor, that he submitted himself to God's will. Do you remember when he prayed in the garden? He was so agonized that he was sweating, it, the Bible says, drops of blood. And yet that, in that moment, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted himself to God's will. He didn't blame. And if anyone on the planet had the opportunity to blame because he was innocent and not guilty, it would have been Jesus. And when God comes to Adam who was guilty, he begins to blame everyone else and shift responsibility to everyone else. And when God comes to Jesus for the sin of his bride that he's not guilty of, he takes responsibility for and refuses to blame because he's the true and he's the better Adam. He's sacrificial, he's selfless, he's courageous. He lays his life down in honor to save those who would put their faith in him. That's the story of the second Adam that he passed his test in the garden when the first Adam failed his test and and I want to work through a few things here uh, just implications of what this means for us what it means for us who relate to to Jesus as our hero and as the second Adam um, that one it means that we get grace how many of you love grace how many of you need grace How many of you are grateful and thankful for grace? That's one of the most unbelievable phrases in the Bible, that where the trespasses and sins increased, grace abounded all the more. What that's saying is that what Jesus did in relation to Adam is that there's more grace in Christ than there is guilt in Adam. There's more grace in Christ and what he has done than there is guilt through what we have done through our sin nature. That what you need is not to work your way up towards God and to try to do better, but to receive the grace that Jesus has purchased for us on our behalf. That it means in Christ we get full grace, unmerited free gifts. Second, it means that we get life if the consequences of Adam's decisions were death the consequences of following Jesus and being attached to his decisions is life it said it in verse 17 uh, in verse 18 and in verse 21 that Jesus is the key to life as God has designed you for you you need to know this that God designed not just humanity but you specifically your story, your heart, the way that He's wired you, your personality. He has designed you for life, for full life, like full abundant life here and eternal life with Christ forever. And those are tethered to Jesus and what He did in the garden. I don't think uh, many humans and definitely many Americans spend enough time thinking about eternity Because there are so many things that dominate our thoughts and our attention in this life. But I need to encourage you that you need to spend some considerable time contemplating your eternity. Because this life is a blip on the screen compared to what happens with us. Because we were made in the image of God as eternal beings. We have an eternal destiny either in heaven or in hell. So you have to spend more time thinking about the eternal consequences of our decisions than we do about this life and, and retirement and our bank accounts and all the things that tend to dominate us. Because I know this, you can spend all of your life focusing on this life until the bitter end when it's too late to think about eternity. Jesus made the claim that He is the key to eternal life to life forever with Jesus. But he also said that he is uh, the one that has the key to abundant life. How many of you would love just an abundant life? You can say yes. This is not a trick question. You're like, I don't know. He tricks us most of the time and he comes in from left field and so we don't talk anymore. Like abundant life. How many of you would love just like abundant life in your relationships, in your marriage, in your business, in your finances, in your health? Like just abundant life. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly, like to give it full. What's the key to that? The key to that is, is, is worshiping and obeying Jesus. And when you're connected with Christ, you're connected with abundant life, you're connected with eternal life. And so the question is, if Adam's sin affected every human being, regardless of our choice, how do we reap the consequences and the the benefits and the blessings of Christ? Does everybody just naturally get life in Christ the way that we got death in Adam? And the answer is no. He says in verse 17, to all those who receive the abundance of grace. So there has to be an act of receiving before you get to inherit the blessings of Christ and really to receive. So who gets to, to benefit from this, this, this second and this better Adam? Uh, number one, those who admit they need grace. Uh, that's what the Bible would call repentance. Repentance is admitting that we need Jesus to do something to change our hearts We need Him to change our lives. We can't change and fix our situation. Repentance is agreeing that we need something. And if we can't agree with God that we need something, then there's no access to that grace. There has to be an admittance of need. And then the second one, there has to be a receiving, which is faith. It's in faith asking God for forgiveness and for restoration and for life and receiving it. Grace is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. And as I pored over this, this text all week, and especially early this morning, I was, I was really drawn to this idea that what Paul is doing is he is setting up Jesus as the hero of heroes. And, and as I thought through this, it's so interesting that every culture really on the planet, and it fills up most of the literature in world history is filled with stories of heroes. It's like humans were just designed to love the story and the idea of heroes. It's in the baseline of almost every human story that has ever been uh, written or played out or put in movies, um, that we were designed to love this idea of heroes. It reaches all the way back to Mesopotamia, the first culture, um, the first thing that we have uh, writings about. They wrote about this fictional hero named Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh uh, had a lot of the traits that we would think of as a hero. Uh, Greek mythology is littered with heroes, Achilles and and, and Hercules, and these stories of uh, superhuman people who did unbelievable things. Uh, The Norse god of Thor and Thor's hammer. Uh, The English literature and folklore and history is filled with heroes, King Arthur, Robin Hood, and uh, many kings throughout the ages. American history we tend to talk and think in terms of heroes. We think about what uh, George Washington did. We think about uh, what Abraham Lincoln did as a hero. We think about what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. did. We think about Harriet Tubman. We think about these people that were unbelievably heroic that that's that 's part of American history. When we think of Texas, what do we think Rosas and <laughs> The Alamo and all the heroes of the Alamo that were filled with honor and sacrifice and courage. Uh, American literature and movies. It's hard to watch a movie without there being the main element of a hero that the center of the story is built upon. Uh, Braveheart, uh, that's the greatest movie ever made, right? Apart from Passion of the Christ, right? We have to say that. It's, it's about this hero who is courageous and self-sacrificial, uh, Harry Potter. Harry Potter is a short hero, but he's a hero nonetheless. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and I could go through hundreds and hundreds of examples. We don't even have to open the Pandora's box of Disney movies, but they're all based on what? On heroes, I mean, this is part of being human. It's like there's something inside of us that is drawn to this idea of heroes. And what Paul is doing is he's saying he's speaking to the need that every human has to have and to long for and to celebrate a hero. And he's saying, yeah, there's some there's some good heroes. Abraham's a cool hero. David's a cool hero. Adam, uh. but Jesus is the, the hero of heroes. He was filled with courage like none other. He had unbelievable character. He was met in a moment of crisis and overcame that crisis. He was sacrificial, laid his life down in place of someone else. He was filled with strength. He was filled with love. He defeats an enemy. He saves the day and he shares his salvation as Robin Hood did. Robin Hood's a hero because he what? He stole from the rich and he gave to the poor. The Lord brought this to my mind this morning that when Isaiah 53 is speaking of Jesus 700 years before he was born, it says he will divide the spoils with the strong. That That's hero language, that Jesus is going to be a hero and he's going to steal from uh, from Satan's sin and things that rightfully belong to us and divide the spoils out like Robin Hood would to those who belong to him. And so this is why I want to uh, bring this to the end here, talking about heroes, because If Jesus is the true and the better Abraham, if he's the true and the better David, if he's the true and the better Adam, he he is the hero of heroes. And this is why we need to see Jesus in certain ways as a hero. Because if you see Jesus as the hero, two things happen. One, he will save you. And two, he will change you. Any other hero is just not strong enough to save you from your sin and the consequences of it. Jesus is the only hero that has defeated that uh, to, to give that as free grace for us. But then he'll also change you. That if you see Jesus as the champion and the Lord and the hero, then what tends to happen is that it tends to mold us. The Bible calls this sanctification that we get made into the image of our God. We get made into the image of Jesus in ancient times in multiple different cultures, but especially the first century Greco-Roman culture which Jesus grew up in and much of the Bible was written in, they wanted their children to have virtuous uh, characteristics. They wanted them to be filled with courage and to be selfless and to be sacrificial and to teach them and grow them and train them to become somewhat of heroes. And they didn't do it, and, and, and Tim Keller has written extensively on this, but he says they didn't do it through self-esteem training. They did it through telling stories about heroes. In war, if you want to increase morale for a country or for an army, uh, normally the, the, the quickest way and the best and most effective way to do that is through heroes, I read a book uh, years ago called the, the War Journals of Major Damon Rocky Goss, he had an unbelievable story of escaping from uh, a prison camp in the Japanese-held Philippines, and he commandeered a fishing boat, and he, uh, against all odds, sailed it to some allied forces in Australia. And he had such a crazy story that they brought him home, and they marched him around US, the U.S. and let him tell his story because that's what they did. If they tell the stories of heroes, then it builds up morale. How many of you have seen the movie Behind Enemy Lines? Wait, that's not right. Enemy at the Gates. Incredible movie. I think it's about 20 years old. It's, it's the story, and it's uh, somewhat based on a true story, but it's the story of, uh, in World War II, the Battle of Stalingrad, uh, which was this massive front where the Germans and the Russians were clashing. And um, the, the, the Germans were, were winning at this point, and it didn't look good. And if they, they took Stalingrad, that was going to be a mark, uh, really a turn in, in, in the Axis favors for World War II. And moral was down among the Russian uh, officers, and there was a lot of folks that were um, fleeing from the army. There were generals that were um, retreating, and uh, there's this moment in this movie uh, where they're trying to build morale and turn the tide in this war, and so this general asks for some ideas, and one guy pipes up, and he basically says, we can shoot all the generals that have uh, retreated. That'll that'll make an example of them, and then that'll cause everybody else to realize we mean business, don't retreat. And someone else says that they, uh, what if we deported all the families of those who have been deserted and make an example of them? And then this man chimes in and he says, yeah, our our army and our men, they, they don't have courage and they need courage and they need an example, but he says they don't need a bad example. He says they need a hero. And so they find this sniper, and they use the printing presses to just pump out all of this information about this one sniper who was killing so many Germans, and it built up morale, and they rallied around this hero, and they uh, won the bloodiest battle of World War II and that was the turning point for allied forces and It's, it's just amazing how much this idea of a hero has to do with the human uh, the human psyche and the human condition and uh, this is why I want to bring this into the story, and I 'll close with this, because in Acts chapter three verse. 15, the writers of the Bible stole a, a word from Greco-Roman culture. Um, this word is archagos. Everyone say archagos. That word means hero. It means champion. It's what in the first century they would use to describe uh, heroes like uh, Achilles. That's what they would use to describe heroes like Hercules and the writers of the Bible steal that word and say you're kind of putting your hope in your place in some faulty heroes. Let me show you about the real hero. And he ta- he says that you killed the author of life, who God raised from the dead. Now, word author is Archegos. He said you killed the only true hero that there is, and God raised him from the dead. And in Hebrews twelve. The Bible uses that same word to encourage us as, as we're walking through our life as Christians. So Jesus is our hero, that he's defeated Satan, sin, and death. And if you respond to that through repentance and faith, you're saved. But if you fix your eyes on that and contemplate Jesus as a hero, he will change you and make you like him. He'll put his, his courage in you. This is what uh, Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, this is talking to Christians, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning faithful Christians that have given their lives and lived with unbelievable courage in the face of fear. They were selfish. They were sacrificial. They were like Jesus. They weren't like the first Adam. They were like the second Adam. He says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and you think, man, yeah, the Christians throughout history have been the most courageous people on the planet, the first century Christians, what they did in the face of persecution and opposition was supernatural. How did they do it? Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, the Bible says, let us throw aside every, everything that hinders us and every sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the Archegos who is the the, the hero, the champion, that if you see Jesus as the true selfless champion of the garden of Gethsemane, then it has a tendency to change you and fill you up with the same type of courage. Looking to Jesus, some versions will say fixing our eyes on Jesus, the archegos, the founder, the the hero, the champion, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy of That was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Every human story that has an element of a hero is pushing our attention towards Jesus. Every Old Testament type is pushing us towards Jesus, who is the true and the better version of all of them. He is the hero of heroes. And when we respond to him in repentance and faith, he saves us. And when we fix our eyes on him, our enemies and our fears and our discouragement tend to melt away. And he gives us courage to live our lives like him as he's living his lives, his life through us. That's my invitation for you, if you're not a Christian, to to, to throw yourself at the the mercy and the unlimited grace of Jesus, to ask it to receive the grace of Christ. And then if you're walking through a season of life that's frustrating or discouraging, to fix your eyes on Jesus and, and, and follow after his footsteps. He is the true and the better Adam. Let me invite you to bow your heads right where you're at, close your eyes, and let's go to the Father together. God, we love you. We need you, we thank you that Jesus is a better Adam, that he didn't fail his test, he didn't distrust you, he didn't give in to the temptations of Satan, but instead he stood firm, he laid his life down for us, he was a true, courageous hero and a savior. And so Father, I pray that this morning... God, that you would draw our hearts to truly be in awe of what you have done, that you were the underdog and no one thought you could do it, but you defeated the grave. You came walking out and having uh, abundant and eternal life to offer anyone who will come to you. God, I pray that in, in difficult days in our lives, you will help us to fix our eyes on you, the hero of our faith. And I pray that as we do that, you will make us like you. You will form us and fashion us into the image of Jesus with courage, with selflessness. To be like this this group of witnesses that we have been surrounded by throughout the ages. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We need you. We praise you. Because you're the only one worthy of our praise. Jesus, I pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.